Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. Welcome everybody in the room, everybody watching online as well. We're so glad you've joined us this morning. So there's this old statement. I know you've heard it. I've talked about it around here. It's a statement dating back to the time of the Reformation. Sola fide. And it simply means faith alone. And it was a challenge that was issued by Martin Luther and others to the Catholic Church that salvation, God's gift of eternal life, has nothing to do with our own good works, what we do. It's entirely a free gift of God's grace given to everyone who believes. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's our mantra here at Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. It's the message of free grace theology. Now, let me just say up front here that there are plenty of churches who give lip service to this particular creed, but sadly, very few really mean it. In other words, they'll say things like, well, yeah, salvation is by faith, or salvation is by faith alone, but then they'll add things to that word faith. They'll redefine faith in such a way that it includes some kind of works, which betrays the very meaning of sola fide, faith alone. And as I've surveyed the theological landscape of churches today, I'm talking Protestant churches, I've come to the conclusion that fewer than 5% truly hold to this persuasion. And those who do are typically referred to as adhering to free grace theology. And so what we're doing in this series is I'm going to explain to you why free grace theology is so critical and how it actually impacts every aspect of your Christian life. Not just how you come to faith in Jesus in the first place, but how you grow in spiritual maturity. And today I want us to start at the very beginning and just talk about how a person comes to God through Jesus in the first place. Now, the story is told of this very diplomatic politician. He was a candidate for the Senate, and he traveled to this small-town community to address the single local church there. But unfortunately, he forgot to ask which denomination the church belonged to. And so when it came time for his speech, he inquired in this way. He said, my brethren all, I must tell you that my great-grandfather was Presbyterian. And then he paused, and there was absolute silence in the room. Well, my grandmother was Episcopalian. More silence. Now, now my other grandfather was Catholic. It was deep silence. <laughs> While my other grandmother was Methodist. Continued silence. But I must also add that I had an aunt who was Baptist. Loud cheers. And I have always believed that my aunt's path was the right one, the politician said. All right, so this morning... I want us to ask the question, I want us to look at this question, how can I be accepted by God? Like, what can I do that will earn God's favor and assure that he'll accept me into his kingdom? And and there are lots of different ways that people try to find acceptance with God, try to save themselves. But if you boil it all down, you can really categorize it into three primary groupings, three different ways people try to get to heaven. The first way is to earn it right? Work hard, follow rules, regulations, and rituals. Most of the world believes this. 
If I just work really, really hard, and in the end, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll make it into heaven. That's one way. The second way people try to find acceptance with God and make it into heaven is by belonging to the right group, salvation by affiliation. Like I'm a blank, and they give you their label, right? Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, whatever it may be. And much like that politician, they're trying to associate with the in-group. And by the way, just as an aside here, let me just tell you, when we get to heaven, we're going to be worshiping alongside of people from a wide variety of denominations. I mean, I think some people, when they get to heaven, they're going to be in shock, okay? But what a glorious day it'll be when Christians finally get to the point where they no longer believe that their denomination is superior or the only way. Like when we get to heaven, we're going to be worshiping alongside of Lutherans represented by the great Martin Luther. And we're going to be worshiping alongside of Baptists represented by the Reverend Billy Graham and Methodists represented by our dear brother John Wesley and Bible church people represented by Jesus. I mean, it's going to be... Like I said, one day we'll get over our bias. I didn't say now. <laughs> so, you know, you can try to get to heaven by doing good works, by belonging to the right group, or the final way you can try to get to heaven is by faith alone, nothing else. Not faith plus baptism, not faith plus going to church, not faith plus works, not faith plus tithing. Romans 3.28 summarizes this truth. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now, as an example of this, in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to tell the story of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. In Romans 4.1, Paul calls him our forefather. Abe was the original Jew. Okay? Through Isaac, Abraham's son, the entire Jewish nation was born. But Abraham was also the father of the Arab nations. He's the father of all Arabs, all Muslims. So all the feuding that's going on in the Middle East is really just a family feud between cousins. Arabs and Israelites trace their family lineage to Abraham. And as we're going to see in Romans 4 today, in some sense, Abraham is the father of Christians as well. So three major religions point back to Abraham. He truly is the father of faith. And let me give you a little bio on Abraham Abraham was born in the city of Ur, over in the Mesopotamian Valley, Ur of the Chaldees. And in Ur, he most likely worshipped the moon. That's what they did. That was what they worshipped in Ur. They worshipped the moon. And it probably wasn't as much out of rebellion as ignorance. But one day, God, the one true God, appeared to Abram and said, Abram, I want you to take your family, all your family, and move. And Abram says, okay, God, where are we going? And God says, I'll show you when we get there. And that's real assuring, isn't it? But by faith, he moved. He did it. And God said, through this one man, I will make a great nation, the nation of Israel. Now, before we dive into Romans chapter 4, there are two key words I want to define up front here so I don't lose anybody in this text. The first word you need to know is the word justified. The Greek term dikaioma, okay? Justified is a legal term, a term used in a courtroom. It literally means to declare not guilty, to declare not guilty. It's been said that to be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. God declares me not guilty just as if I'd never broken any laws. 
That's justified. Okay, the second key term is the word credited. Some versions use reckoned or counted. It's the Greek logizo. We get our word logic from this. It's a bookkeeping term, an accounting term. And it literally means to compute, to calculate. So when God reckons, he calculates our sin, and he calculates what Jesus did on the cross. And when he computes them together, the one cancels out the other. See, God, he looks at the debit column at our sin. And then he looks at the credit column at Christ's righteousness, and the books balance in the end. Okay, that's this concept of credited or, or reckoned in the book of Romans. Okay, let's dive in here. This is Romans chapter 4. We're going to walk through this pretty much verse by verse this morning. Let's answer the question, how can we be accepted by God? All right, Abraham shows us here. Romans 4, 1 to 2 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, Paul's going to start here by letting us know how we won't be accepted by God. First, and you can write this down, we don't become acceptable to God by doing good works. Paul says, if you could save yourself and, and work for it, then it would follow that you could go out and just boast about it, but not before God. You might be able to brag before people. You may be able to impress other people, but God's standards are so much higher that you, you just don't impress God. Not one iota. Donald Gray Barnhouse once said this, Christ sends none away empty except those who are full of themselves. <laughs> That's good. You know, let me just be honest here. You don't impress God. None of you, okay? In fact, just say that with me. I don't impress God. Let's go ahead and say it. I don't impress God. No matter what you do, you don't impress God. Why? Well, because he sees beyond our outward actions into our hearts. He knows our true motives. He's not impressed. But there is a way to find acceptance with God. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith made him righteous. This is a huge concept because the same thing applies to us. It's faith that makes us righteous. If you go back to Genesis 15, God appears to Abram in a vision. And God says, Abram, you're going to become a great nation. Now, Abram, at this point in time, he's in his 80s and he has no children. And God says, you're going to be a great nation. Listen to Genesis 15, 5 and 6. He, God, took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Folks, this is the first time in the Bible the word believe is used. In the Hebrew, it literally means to say amen, which means so be it. I agree. God says, you're, you're going to have tons of kids. You're going to have all these descendants. And Abram's like, so be it, God. Bring it. I agree. Amen. He believed God, and then God credited that faith to his account, counted it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, did Abram in any way earn this privilege? No. The Bible just says God chose him for this role. Now, just for a minute, I want you to imagine that you are 85 years old, and God comes to you and tells you you're going to have a child, okay? 
Like, how would you respond to that, right? Out at Sun City, there were some people really thinking, right? There are a few 85-year-olds out there. You might have to reach a bit here. You're 85. You're going to have a child. Now, we know how Sarah responds, right? She cracks up laughing. And by the way, we know she didn't believe God because an 80-year-old woman, if she thinks she's going to have a child, she's not going to laugh. She's going to cry, right, women? Yeah, so we know she didn't believe. That is clear. But God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? It's like, check this out. A couple of old fogies here having a kid. In fact, they name him Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. Now, we name our kids, what, joy and grace. I've never heard of anybody calling their child joke. <laughs> hey, joke. Come here. Laughter. That was the baby's name. Why? Because God has a sense of humor. So God blesses them with his child. Why? Because Abraham believed. Now, in verses 4 and 5, Paul adds another illustration. He says, now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. When you work a job and your boss gives you a paycheck, do you consider that to be a, a gift? No you, no, you work for it. It's not a gift. It's something you earned. You put in the sweat equity. So how could salvation be a gift if you work for it? It can't be. Now, the Bible does say there is something that we have earned through our works. Death, separation from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Like we get our condemnation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. But the gift of God is eternal life. God justifies us as a free gift. Look back at verse 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Why would God justify the wicked? Because that's all there is. There are no righteous people walking around. So God justifies those, did you get this here? who don't even try to work. They don't even try to work. God accepts a wicked, immoral person with faith above a highly moral person with no faith. People, when you have faith, it goes in that credit column, it cancels out your sin. And guess what else? This is really important because people lose this, all right? After you're saved, after you put your faith in Jesus, even as a believer, your faith is credited as righteousness. That's continually how you get credit for being righteous. God prefers a man or woman of great faith who may struggle morally over a man or woman of fear and doubt who may live a better moral life. And this is where people get way off track because I think we start out accepting righteousness as this free gift from God and we walk by faith, but then somewhere along the line, we start to try to eke it out in our own strength. Like, we're like, well, you know what? I got I to gotta please God. I got to earn God's favor. <laughs> I've got to start this legalistic thing of things I got to do, right? Got to have a quiet time, read my Bible, pray, witness three times a day, whatever's on your list. Like, we get this list of things we think is somehow going to please God and earn God's favor. But the Bible says, no, the way you began your relationship with God by faith is the way you're to continue to live the Christian life, by faith. The bottom line is this. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to cause God to love you any more or any less than he does right now. That is an amazing truth. 
that God loves you as much on your bad days as he does on your good days. You get credit according to your faith, not your works apart from faith. Now, at this point, sometimes people will say, well, if that's the case, then why not just go out and live any way I want? I don't recommend that, all right? I really don't. God is a just God. There's a law of sowing and reaping. We're going to talk more about this later on in this series, okay? God will still love you. God won't send you to hell if you put your faith in him, but he will discipline you. Like, I love my kids. You think when they were little, I just let them go hog wild, do whatever they wanted? No, I discipline them because I love them. God will do the same. More on that later in the series. Okay, next, Paul's going to give us another example, but this time from the life of David. Like Abraham and David, those are the bigwigs of Jewish history. He's pulling out the big guns here. Look at verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 32, a psalm of confession after, by the way, David had murdered Uriah the Hittite, which happened after he committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And David says, man, I made such a mess of my life because of my sin, but God cleared my record just because I believed, not because I deserved to be forgiven, but because I believed. David says he canceled the sin. He canceled the debt. God does not hold your sin against you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So Paul, using Abraham and David as examples, proves that we don't become acceptable to God through our good works. Second, Paul says we don't become acceptable to God by religious rituals. Okay, next, Paul's going to talk about the Jewish rite of circumcision. And you need to understand, this was the most important symbol to the Jews. To the Jews of the first century, if you were not circumcised, you were not a true believer. And they also believed that the ritual of circumcision was like an instant passport to heaven. Well, Paul says that's an error for two reasons. First, in verses 9 and 10, we read this. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. You go back to Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But folks, Abraham was not a Jew at this point. He didn't become a Jew until he was circumcised. And when did that happen? Much later. Genesis 17, verse 23. says, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born of his household or bought with his money, every male, and circumcised them as God told him. All right, think about this. In Genesis 15, Abraham's 85 years old. By Genesis 17, he's 99. It's 14 years later. When did God say to Abraham, Abraham, you're accepted when he was 85, 14 years before this whole ritual of circumcision ever came about? Paul is blowing the Jews' minds here. All those who believe, well, you got to be circumcised to be of the faith of Abraham, to be justified. 
Paul's like, hey, read your Bibles, guys. Like, Abraham was considered righteous 14 years before circumcision ever came about. Abraham was a Gentile when he was justified. Okay, back to Romans 4. Second reason this ritual doesn't work is found in verse 11. It says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Did you get that? A seal. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul says circumcision is a symbol of your faith, not a cause of your faith. You know, in good housekeeping, they have a seal, a seal of approval. On meat, hamburger, pot roast, steak, there's a label on that meat. It says USDA approved. Now, does that label make that meat acceptable or simply show that the meat is acceptable? Well, obviously, it's the latter. Well, that's what all rituals do. You know, the modern-day counterpart of circumcision is baptism. And people, baptism does not make you a believer. Baptism shows that you're a believer. I say this all the time. Baptism is like the wedding ring of the Christian life. This ring does not make me married. It shows that I'm married. It's an outward sign of an inward commitment. Rituals are symbols. They're signs that say this has been approved. So Abraham is not only the father of the Jews, he's the father of everyone who believes, whether they have been through a Jewish ritual or not. So we don't become acceptable to God through good works. We don't become acceptable to God through religious rituals. And third, we don't become acceptable to God by keeping the law. This would be specifically the Old Testament Jewish laws. Verse 13 it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, Paul uses Abraham as an example of someone who is saved apart from keeping the law because he lived 430 years before the Ten Commandments ever came about. So, I mean, how in the world could Abraham be justified, be saved by keeping the law when the law didn't come about until 430 years later when Moses comes on the scene. Hey, Paul is saying, you guys who think you're saved by keeping all these written laws in here, all these particular rules, you need to wake up. Like Abe had it made 430 years before the law. Now you got to ask the question, what then was the purpose of the law? We'll look at verses 14 and 15. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So here's the deal. If there is no law to break, you can't pinpoint lawbreakers. Make sense? No law to break, you can't pinpoint the lawbreakers. Now we all know that there is something about human nature whereby the moment a law is established, what happens? There's like this desire to maybe challenge that law, to test that law. If you go back to Genesis, the very, very beginning, God told Adam and Eve, hey guys, you can eat from anything in this entire garden of Eden except that one little tree over there. Okay, which one did they want to taste? <laughs> it's like signs that say, don't touch the wet paint, keep off the grass. 
Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That means the only way we can keep from breaking the law is if there are no laws. So the law, the purpose of the law was never to save anybody. It was to show us where we blow it and to prove that we don't measure up, that all fall short. So Paul has proven that we don't become acceptable to God by good works, don't become acceptable to God by religious rituals, and we don't become acceptable to God by keeping the Old Testament law. The only way we become acceptable to God is by faith. At the end of this passage here, Paul addresses one final question. Why did God make our acceptance based only on faith? This is a good question. Why did God choose faith as the means of salvation? Well, Paul's going to answer that question here. To demonstrate God's grace. That's why. Verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, and here it is, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, us, those who believe. He is the father of us all. People, salvation is by faith so that it can fully demonstrate God's grace. And the key word here, I think, is promise. Because when God makes a promise, it's guaranteed. And this promise is not based on your performance. God doesn't say, hey, if you keep working or keep on believing or keep doing, then I'll keep justifying. Now, once you accept it, it's yours, whether you perform or not. Salvation is by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. Guaranteed. Isn't that awesome? You've been given a written guarantee by God. Once you exercise faith, you're saved for good. That's a promise. And if you flip this around, if your acceptance was in any way based on your performance, how could you be certain that you're going to heaven? You could never be absolutely certain. You'd live in a constant fear of, well, I wonder if I've done enough, or, or what if I sin and all of a sudden die in the middle of that sin? People, our acceptance is by grace so that it can be guaranteed. Now, can we take advantage of God's grace? Well, the answer to that one we're going to talk about later on in this series. It's sort of yes and sort of no. It depends on what you mean by that question. But the Bible is very clear that we should never, ever add anything to the simplicity, the truth of the gospel message, just because we're afraid of permissiveness. Some people worry that that preaching grace, man, that's going to give people this permission to go out and do all kinds of terrible things, then just come back and get God's forgiveness over and over again. Well, you and I may be worried about extending grace, but Jesus apparently wasn't. Jesus was not afraid to give the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. And to prove it, he actually has the older brother come in at the end of the story And that older brother, he raises a lot of the same objections we raise, a lot of the objections I hear raised about free grace theology. If you know the story, that older brother comes in, and he is not happy, is he? He is angry. He's angry about the party. He accuses the father of lowering standards, ignoring virtue, that music and dancing and a fattened calf are, in effect, just license for more sin, to which Jesus has the father say, cut it out. Cut it out. We're not playing good boys and bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead, and he's alive again. 
From now on, the name of the game is grace, not bookkeeping. Grace, not bookkeeping. And as we close here, let me just let you in on a little secret. When it comes, this is something God knows, I think, and I think something we all need to know. When it comes to wooing people to live life God's way, grace is a way more powerful tool than the law. See, grace touches our hearts. Grace inspires us to serve God out of love, out of gratitude, rather than out of fear and out of duty. Love and grace are the most powerful, inspiring forces in this universe. Amen? You know how God proved that? (laughs) By sending Jesus. God proved that in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. Because there are times when our brain, we struggle to wrap our head around your unending love and your amazing grace. We don't deserve it, not at all. But we are so grateful for it. And thank you that to demonstrate your grace, to demonstrate your love, you made salvation by faith alone so that no one's going to boast before you. It's a free gift. And may we never, ever, ever change the purity of the gospel message. Might we preach what is preached over 150 times in the New Testament. Salvation is simply by believing in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've never gotten to that point where you know that you know that you know that if you died, you would be in his presence It's very simple because there's no ritual you have to do. There's no law you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn this. What you do is you say, Jesus, and you can do it right now. Just cry out in the quietness of your heart. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're my Savior. I believe you died on that cross. I believe you paid for all my sins, and you've given me forgiveness and eternal life. And I thank you for that. Lord, for those of us who have lived as Christians for a long time, maybe we need to be reminded of how awesome your love and grace truly is. And as we get into this series and we go deeper, Lord, we're going to understand that it's, it's not a license to sin. That can get us in a lot of trouble. But it is a way that we can find peace and assurance every day and not have to live in fear, not have to serve you out of duty. So God, we want to serve you out of love and gratitude for what you've done. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, right now, Josh and Dylan are going to come up. They're going to close us in a worship song. And as they do, I want to bring something to your attention. We have an exciting new tool for you. If you noticed on your bulletin today, in the upper corner, there's a QR code. Okay, we all learned about QR codes during COVID. You went to a restaurant one day, right? And it was like, where's the menu? And like, well, you just take the picture. Okay, if you take a picture of that little QR code, it's going to lead you to a part of our website. You can also go to hillcountry.life that says Life with God. It's a daily devotional. I've been asked for years, hey, could you put out something maybe Monday through Friday where we can just kind of reinforce the message? Because Brian's statistics show that 90% of what you say on Sunday has been forgotten by Monday, okay? And I'm not offended by that. 
too much, okay? It's just the truth. So how do you reinforce these truths? Well, Monday through Friday, you can do this in a couple of minutes, all right? Very simple. Up at top, there's a key verse, one verse, and then there's a key point, and then there's a little blurb that kind of comes out of the message, a reminder, a little message for the day, one question to ask yourself, and then an application. And you do that Monday through Friday, and God will use that to really reinforce the truth of his word. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that. We're excited about that, a new ministry that we've kind of launched. And give me feedback on how you like it, and we can tweak as we go along. All right, guys, we did some worship.